This is the Thoughts from a Page podcast, which is now a member of the Evergreen Podcasts Network. My name is Cindy Burnett, and each episode I interview authors about their latest works or others in the book world about their roles, what those roles entail, and the books they love. For more book recommendations, check out my earlier episodes and my website, thoughtsfromapage.com, and follow me on Instagram and Facebook at Thoughts from a Page. Thanks to Maggie Garza of HTX Real Estate Group for sponsoring my podcast. Today, I am interviewing Julia Claiborne Johnson about Better Luck Next Time. She grew up on a farm in Tennessee, attended the University of Virginia, and studied creative writing at Boston University. She worked at Mademoiselle and Glamour magazines before moving to Los Angeles with her comedy writer husband. They have two children. Better Luck Next Time is one of my favorite reads of 2021, and I was thrilled to pieces to get to speak with Julia about it. I hope you enjoy our conversation. You know, a lot can happen in seven minutes, and luckily, that's how long it takes me to tell a story. My name is Aaron Califato, and I'm the creator of 7-Minute Stories. I'm proud to partner with Evergreen Podcasts, and I'd like to invite you to join me on this journey. I'm going to take you on some crazy roller coaster rides using my unique extemporaneous storytelling style, and together, we're going to try to make sense of the world, all through the art of storytelling, and all in approximately seven minutes. Welcome, Julia. How are you today? I'm doing okay. I may sneeze during this, but I'll, I'll try not <laughs> to hold tight. <laughs> well, I absolutely loved your book, Better Luck Next Time, and I'm thrilled to pieces that we're getting to talk about it today. Oh, I'm excited too. I like being loved. I'm funny that way. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I know. It's a nice feeling, I think. Uh-huh. Well, for those that haven't been lucky enough to read it yet, why don't we start out with you just talking a little bit about the book, what it's about? Oh, well, I'll sort of tell you how I came to write it, and that'll explain it, too, at the same time. And in real life in the 1930s, during there was a thing going on called the Depression. You may have heard of it. And <laughs> um, my father got this job working as a fake cowboy on a divorce ranch outside of Reno. And they, you know, if you've ever seen that old black and white movie, The Women, there's a scene on one of those. Well, anyway, that's, they basically would hire men because they were young, good looking, good dancers, fun to be with. And that was my father to a T. So that was sort of the springboard for this. And I thought because I knew about it, everybody knew about it. But then the older he got and the older I got, I was like, oh, wait a minute, everybody's father did not have this job. But by the time it was super interesting to me, he was not capable of talking about it anymore. He was very old. So I did a bunch of research about it and I wrote a book and I couldn't find where he had been when I went to do this. I went to Reno to do the research at the Historical Society, but because I didn't know where he'd been or when he was there exactly, I got to sort of make the whole thing up. So the facts of it are true, but the the story is fictional. And it's about a guy in the Depression, his parents lose all their money. He was at Yale, so he has to drop out. And he got, gets this job working on a divorce ranch and being, you know, basically a walker for all these ladies. He just has to listen to them, look but don't touch kind of thing. And, you know, hijinks ensue. So, and he grows up to be a, a doctor after that. And my mother was a doc in real life was a doctor. So all of the doctoring stuff comes from her. And then all the idea came from my father. So all these things sort of came together to make this story that's really funny and I think and fun. But there is some heartbreak. That's my favorite kind of story, the ones that make you laugh and cry. Absolutely. The very best stories make you do both. I completely mm -hmm. agree. One of my very favorite things about the book was the way that you structured it, mm -hmm. that you open with Ward in 1988, and he is clearly talking to someone. You don't know mm -hmm. whom yet. And 
he's kind of telling this story and then you go back in time. How did you come up with that format? I just loved it. I mean, literally, I sat down to kind of flip through the book because I sometimes will do that just to get a mm-hmm. sense for it. And like mm-hmm. three hours later, I was still reading. And that does oh, not happen I to me. I love very that often. you are my f- be- new best friend. <laughs> um, I told you we're besties for the resties. <laughs> this is the sad part that it sprang from. My mother is in a, um, she has bad dementia because, of course, there is no good dementia. And um, it was just sort of like, what would it be like to tell this story when you're in that situation? Like you're thinking back on your life. He, and my the narrator is named Ward, and Ward is not mentally frail. His mind is still sharp, but he's physically frail. And that's why he's in an old folks home. So that was always sort of going to be, to me, it's a book about my mother, but it's not really. But you know, that was sort of why the frame came to my mind because of that. So that is not a very articulate answer, but it's sort of, that's how it came up that way. And it's funny, Cindy, because I wrote it three times. And the first time I wrote it in third person, because I don't know if you've ever read my first book, it's called Be Frank With Me. And it's, um, it's in first person. So I thought, I'll write it in third person. And my editor said, well, you know, you're all voice and throwaway jokes. And this third person is not serving you well. So I threw it away. And I started over and I thought I was writing it in first person, because I guess I slept through the part of English class where they said, if you're addressing it to a you, it's second person. So it is second person. And that was hard. But anyway, so that's sort of how it came to be that way. It just It's funny because when you write a book, once you get going on it, it's like it's already sort of written and you're just following it. So in my head, that was how the book was. You know what I'm saying? So, Well, so I guess that's right because he's telling the story, but he's telling it to someone. So that makes yes. it second person. I right. haven't even thought about that. Well, it works yes. very, very well for this oh, book. Good. And I'm like glad. I said, I mean, I just... I loved him from the beginning. His sense of humor is wonderful. And I just, I loved the setting because I was not familiar with these divorce farms or ranches, uh-huh. I guess. I just loved all of it. Were there a bunch of divorce ranches outside of Reno? Yeah, they was all over Nevada. And it was, it was to get, I mean, originally it was because of mining. You know how they had gold and silver rushes in the uh, 1800s? Right. And it was to free up late. There weren't a lot of men, women there, but there were a lot of men. So they made it relatively easy to divorce because if you weren't happy with one person, they thought, well, you can be married to somebody else. Because when you have a lot of unmarried men somewhere, it is a destabilizing. Right. And so then it got to be like movie stars heard about it because Nevada is fairly um, close to California and rich people in New York heard about it. So they started to come because you could get to Reno by train. And that's how it started. And then during the Depression, they it really blew up because they were doing it to get tax dollars and tourist dollars also. So that's sort of how it got to be a big thing. And I wish I've got to look up the list of all the people who got divorced there because it is mind blowing. Like everybody used to go. And now I did a book group in Reno about a month ago and they were really young, but none of them had heard of it. And they grew up there. I was like, oh my God, it really is just totally forgotten. That is interesting. It was really fun to find out more than I knew. I bet. And it sounded like the way it worked in your book that, and probably at many of these ranches, that you would sort of have a new group, almost like a camp session. You'd have a new group that would come in for the six weeks and they would Mm -hmm. do their time and hang out together, go get divorced. Mm -hmm. They'd leave the next six week group. People would come in. Yeah. And so like I talk about it in the book, how she tries to orchestrate it. So they all arrive at the same time and leave at the same time because it makes it easier for the group to coalesce that way, but it didn't always work. 
But it's funny, Cindy, because I did another book group of ladies from Northern California who I think were in their 70s or 80s. And one of them had gone, just like in the book, she didn't stay at a dude ranch, but she'd gone to Reno. She'd gotten her divorce. She threw her wedding ring in the river. And then she got it married again immediately. I was like, oh my God, it's just like in the book. And she's like, yes, you got it all exactly right. And I was so thrilled. I can't even begin to tell you. Oh, that had to be the best feeling. That was the best. Seeing, as she's telling you that, you're like, oh, I hope she's not going to start listing out what I got wrong. No, she's <laughs> like, you got everything right. And that's why it's fun to do book groups is because people come to you with knowledge about things that you don't know. Because there were, I did a book group that had a bunch of lawyers in it in Nashville and judges, and they were divorce lawyers. And one of them explained to me one of the reasons that it fell apart was there's a, a famous case called Williams versus the state of North Carolina, because these two people went to Reno, got their divorces, married each other, but they went home and then their respective spouses sued them for bigamy. And they both went to the big house for it. I don't know how long, but you know, wow. I was like, oh, because not every state recognized it. So it was very complicated, but very exciting at the same time. So. <laughs> exactly. Tell me a little bit more about writing both Nina and Emily. Which one of them did you identify with more? Which one was harder to write? Oh, um, I think Emily was harder to write because she was the one being sort of pulled along. Although she was, in the end, the bravest. She had the most guts of all of them. And there's an incident that happens in there, which you'll remember. And that's where it's proven that, that she's the one like that. But then um, Nina is so outrageous. And I loved Nina. She's uh, six feet tall. She's an aviatrix. She's incredibly wealthy. and She's on her third husband. And when my mother was young, my mother's a doctor. And when she was, she used to tell me when she was a kid, she used to try to, people told her if she kissed her elbow, she would turn into a boy. And she kept trying to do it because she wanted to the things that men could have. And once I was growing, I was like, that is the saddest story I've ever heard. But she went to medical school anyway. Did She didn't let it stand in her way. And Nina is sort of like that. She's like, nothing should stand in my way just because I'm female. And my husband, like, I really love Nina. And my husband loved the Zeppelin. And I said, well, who's another character? And I said, well, they're kind of the same character. Like, they both like to shock people. And they're funny. And he, Chris said, well... Nina is also you. And I was like, yeah, but the Zeppelin's me too. So, you know. I loved the way you introduced Nina. Like that was so memorable. Like I can still visualize it even now. And I read the book a while ago. Um, I just thought your introduction of her really kind of set her character and, and introduced her to the reader in a very outstanding way. Oh, thank you. Well, you know, I was like set on fire with a whole aviatrix thing because I'm, I'm a student of obituaries. I love them better than anything. And I went to see this documentary about the New York Times obituary department, and it was called Obit. And they were talking about how they have all these files because they write the obituaries in advance for people that seem likely to die. They're either really old or they do something incredibly dangerous. So they showed the obituary they'd had the longest, which was for a woman named Eleanor Smith. And when she was 15 or 16, she flew her airplane under all the bridges around Manhattan. And it was one of these like tin can kind of airplanes, you know, <laughs> and I, and then she lived to be 98. And so I was obsessed with that. And then I just fell into a black hole of like, or a rabbit hole of aviatrix memoirs. Have you ever read, oh my gosh, Cindy, have you ever read West with the Night? No. And I want to oh. see that Obit documentary too. I'm going to have it's, to go look oh, that up when we're done. It good. sounds really good. It's but so tell good. me about the book that you're talking about. Cause I, I have not even heard of it. Beryl Markham wrote it in the 1950s. Oh maybe, yeah. I know her. Yeah, yes. so she was the first person, male or female, to fly from Europe to America versus America to Europe, like Lindbergh did. 
And the blurb on the thing was from Hemingway. It's like, she writes better than all of us. And I read it and I was like, yes, she does. She's amazing. So it's her a memoir of being a pilot. And she also raced horses. So like I read that, I read The Spirit of St. Louis. I read every book I could find that was a memoir of a, of a pilot or a female pilot m- more than male. But I did read The Spirit of St. Louis. And so then I was like, these people had guts because the things they flew were just like, they looked like, well, you know, there's one point where they talk about Nina's plane when, when Emily goes to see it the first time. And I had done a lot of research and I had decided what kind of plane she would probably have. And I went on YouTube and I found, because I wanted to, you can go on YouTube and find walkarounds of things like for cars or something. So you can see what they really look like. I think it's, it's either a gypsy moth or a tiger moth. Now I can't remember. And it had those collapse of the wings that folded back like Nina's did. And so he's like <laughs> showing it to you. First of all, with the wings folded back, it looked like a soapbox derby car. I am not kidding you. It looked like if you, you know, took a hammer to it, you could, you know, bust it up into a million tiny pieces. So then he like folds a wing out and he takes like a hinge kind of a thing of the size of your forefinger and puts that in a slot and then puts this teeny little strap like your watch band that snaps. It doesn't even buckle. <laughs> and that's what holds the thing in place. And you're like, oh my God, I would never get in that death trap. And that's what I have Emily say when she sees it the first time. She's like, you can't believe people would fly these things. That's what I thought when I was reading yeah. about it. I was like, no way would I get no in that. <laughs> but they thought everybody was going to have one. So that's why they made them with the collapsible wings so you could put them in your garage. I know you have one in your garage, right? I do. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And I take it out all the time. Well, that's interesting. And that makes me think of Great Circle because isn't Maggie Shipstead's movie? I, I haven't book? read it yet. I'm dying I to read either. it. Yeah, I am too, yeah. but it is long. And so I just haven't had the time to sit down to tackle something that long yet. But I yeah. keep hearing how good it is. And it's about an, an aviatrix in the 1930s, mm-hmm, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it was such a big thing. Like those rich ladies, they were just like, let me at it. You know, like I'm going to do whatever I want. Because they were like set free by being so wealthy. And it was a really a transformative time. In society, too, where like, you know, they just come out of the roaring 20s where people would walk around basically with no underwear on under those dresses. <laughs> and, you know, they were like, you know, the world has opened up to us. And then it sort of closed back down again. But, you know, it was, it was an exciting time. So it was an exciting time. And, you know, it's interesting because I hadn't thought about it before. But with our current pandemic, you know, people have mentioned how the 1920s followed the Spanish flu or the 1918 flu, whatever you want to mm-hmm. call it. And that because everything was so shut down and the war, all of it, that mm-hmm. then kind of led to these wild and crazy times. And I'm uh-huh. sort of curious to see if that same thing's going to happen now. Yeah. Buckle up, honey. <laughs> I know, exactly. It, it's coming. Uh-huh. I got to get ready. Well, I tell you, I'm ready for a little bit of it. I'm so tired of just sitting around, you know. Oh, yeah, <laughs> indeed. Well, I love to talk about titles and covers. Those are questions that I ask almost everyone because I just think it's so fascinating, but I am particularly excited to talk about both of them with you. Partway through the book, you learn where the title comes from. Yes. Um, and I just thought that was so clever and it truly made me love the book even more. And then I think your cover is my favorite cover of the year. So I want to hear all about both. Oh, I'm very excited to hear that. Well, here's the thing. I mean, as a preamble, I will say that, you know, my father who worked on one of those ranches had a first wife who was fantastically wealthy, who he must have met on the ranch. Because I don't know where else a young man who grew up on a dairy farm in West Tennessee in a tiny town would have met somebody who was fantastically wealthy. And she, he was her second husband of six. So divorce was a good thing for him. His second wife, my mother, he was married to for the rest, when he married her for the rest of his life, for like 40 or 50 years, however long it was. 
And I also have a second husband who I've been married to for 30 years now. So you can't have better luck the next step. So I liked that. So then I was reading the, the most famous divorce judge in Reno at the time was named George Bartlett. And he wrote a memoir, which I read, and I loved it. It was fabulous. When he would hit his gavel to like set people free from their marriages, he would gavel and then he'd say, better luck next time. So that was very entertaining. And how about the stunning cover? The stunning cover is so great. Like um, a woman named Mumtaz Mustafa designed it and she designed my paperback for my first book. And so if you ever see them next to each other, they look really great together, which is very exciting to me. And I just kept saying to my editor, not too cowboy, okay? Not too cowboy, because I didn't want it to people to look at it and go, I, yeah, I'm not in a Zane Gray frame of my mind, because it's not really a cowboy story. It's a, it's a historic, I didn't even know it was historical fiction until they told me. I was like, oh, it's historical fiction. Okay. But it has, it gets across the summer camp kind of vibe. And also there's a blonde woman and a dark haired woman, as are Nina and Emily. And Nina, who is the adventurous blonde tall one, has a bow and arrow on the cover. Which, you know, I don't know if you've heard of this Cupid fellow, but he also <laughs> carries a, a bow and arrow. The editor sent it to me and I went, oh, yes. Oh, my God. So I was very excited about it. I mean, it is just beautiful. And I love the color green that the letters are in, all of it. I just think it's it's so well done. And it's so eye-catching, whether it's large or small, you know, it, it, it's, it catches my attention. The Nina character is elbows over one of the letters. Did you notice that? I had not until so, you said it. I'm looking at it. Yeah, I have it right here with me. And so I did not even notice that. I love that even more. That thrilled me so much. I can't even begin to tell you. So anyway. I would love to hear all about your writing process. Do you write, are you a pantser or a plotter? And then do you have a set time of day that you write? Do you write when you want to? How does that work? Oh, I am not a plotter. But what I do is, too bad we don't have visuals because I keep track of things as I go. So like, it's like an outline behind you. You know, like everything I've written, I put it on a post-it note and keep it on on a I push pin it onto a piece of cardboard because a post-it note by itself will flutter away. Right. Because a book is so long, it's hard to keep track of everything. And I have a very elaborate system that it, if, you, if, I, if you had visuals, it would be easy to explain, but it's hard to explain without it. For my first book, my kids were still fairly young. And so I would take them to school and then I would just write like crazy until half an hour before it was time to pick them up. And then I would lie down and take a nap because I found that was part of my artistic process, Cindy. Because <laughs> my brain would consolidate everything I'd done that day and sort of, you know, move it around. And like, it would, it would be better when I went back to it. But then for this one, I would just basically write all day. And, you know, because I wrote three versions of it, <laughs> it was a lot of writing. So um, the thing that I think separates a successful writer from uh, somebody who doesn't succeed is the ability to dust yourself off. So my editor rejected the first version that was in third person, because like I said, she said, it's not serving. It's not my playing to my strengths. But instead of just giving up, I was like, all right, I'll start over. And then I wrote another version and turned it into her. She jokes because I tell this story so much, but it's fascinating to me. I turned in the second version and she said, I love the prologue. I hate the rest of it. Okay. That's hilarious. (laughs) So did I. Like, I knew that the prologue was a lot better than the rest of it, but I needed her to say the rest of it isn't working because I kept saying, eh, it's, you know, it's okay. It's, it's working. So I threw the rest of it away. But this time I had six pages to start with instead of zero pages, which made it a lot easier. And then I, and then it, because I'd been working on it for so long and I knew all the characters, it, I wrote that version of it in eight months, but I could not have written 
that book in eight months just from from a dead stop. And also I typed all day long every day because I was so desperate to finish it. But, you know, that was the thing is I was able to make myself keep going. And, you know, my husband used to call me um, iron ass because when (laughs) Richard Nixon went to law school, he knew he wasn't the smartest person there or the most talented. But the one thing he had that the others didn't was he could keep his bottom in a chair longer than anybody else. So they called him iron ass. So that's what my husband started calling me because I was just like, I'm not giving up. I hope my, the similarities between us end there. <laughs> well, when I think of Nixon, I think of you. No, I'm just kidding. Not at all. <laughs> Not at all. Hairline, maybe. Well, but how about, I mean, when you wrote the first version, even though it was in third person, how many of those ideas or those characters, personalities, or things that are going to happen carried into your next one? It was very different. But there were characters who were, like, I know Maxwell Gregory was always the head of the thing, and the, Ward was there. And Nina and Emily were there, but there were other characters too. You know, I can't even remember. It's like a bad, like a bad boyfriend. <laughs> Get about as much of it as you can. <laughs> well, and I don't want to say anything about the ending because this is definitely spoiler free. But I, the only thing I will say is that I absolutely loved it. And it was one of those times, and this does not happen to me very often at all, when I just close the book and I just sit there, like I had tears in my eyes and I was just like, I love this book so much. And I, my husband's like, what are you doing? Because I'm like staring off into space, holding the book. I just finished the best book. And I just can't do anything but just sit here thinking about it for a little while. Oh my God. And then when I reviewed it before we talked today, I teared up again when I was looking oh. at the ending. <laughs> I was See, like, if oh. only we could have, I could have heard this in the dark days where I thought, <laughs> I'm never going to finish this book. I'm never going to finish it. Well, think of that next time when you're writing your next one. My editor would say to me, and she had many uh, writers who were in the same pickle. She said, the second book is the hardest one. Yeah. Because you don't, you aren't really confident yet. And your first book you've been writing kind of all your life. And I found this to be true. And so one of her other authors is a woman named Heather Young, who wrote a really gorgeous book called The Distant Dead that came out in March, 2020. You know, that was a terrible time to have your book come out. And- she and I knew each other. And so we would just like talk each other off the ledge all the time. And it turned out really great for both of us, you know, so that was wonderful. So if you're a writer, you need to find your writer friends because there's really nobody else who can understand the particular hell of what what you're going through, particularly with the second book. So I hear authors say that a lot, that finding your group of similar Mm -hmm. like-minded authors, even if you're writing totally different things, just people that you gel with and you can bounce ideas off of each other or talk about mm-hmm. the intricacies of publishing that, you know, a lot of other people won't really understand. It's a long process. There's so mm-hmm. much involved that having those people with you really helps. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, because Stephen Rowley, author of The Gunkle in bookstores now, um, used to be <laughs> And, you know, when we met and we're like, oh, we live close to each other. So we would go on long walks through the neighborhood and just bitch and moan. And it was the best because, you know, we both were struggling with the second books and then he's written three now. So I kind of don't like him anymore. So anyway, it was very helpful. Well, what about what you've read and loved lately? Oh, I have such a good book. And everybody I've thrust it on is like, oh my God, this is like the best book ever. And it doesn't sound like it would be that fun because it's about a woman who's incredibly depressed, but it's called um, Sorrow and Bliss and it's by somebody named Meg Mason. And it's so funny, Cindy. And like my husband is not a reader of fiction. He reads like big, thick, boring to me, um, nonfiction books. 
And so I was reading parts of it aloud to him, which I don't think I've ever done in my life. Because I thought it was so funny. He's a comedy writer. I should say that. So like he is a connoisseur of comedy. And so I read parts to him. He goes, oh, it's like Nancy Mitford. And I don't know if you've ever read any Nancy Mitford books. The early ones, the two first ones she wrote are the funniest things you've ever read. And I was like, yes, she is. And so I've thrust that book to many people and everybody's like, oh my God, it's like the perfect book. So that's the, that's one. And Steve Rowley's book, The Gunkle, is a delight. It is so funny. You've read it, right? I have. Oh, it is a delight. Yeah. I just interviewed him not that long ago and I absolutely loved it. And I loved his second book too, The Editor. Oh, right. Yes. So he was- uh editor when I started Better Luck Next Time. He was almost done with it. And I was so jealous that he was almost done. And then he, his um, original editor turned it down. And so she, he went to another publisher and it turned out great for him. It was like the best thing ever. So, and his husband wrote a book called A Star is Bored. Have you read that? I haven't. And I really want to, especially after I spoke with Stephen not too long ago, I need to. I just have been reading usually for the podcast, but I need to get that book because everybody raves about it. It's really funny because he used to be in real life. He was Carrie Fisher's personal assistant. So it's a Romana Clef and it's so it's super heartbreaking, you know, for obvious reasons, but it's so funny. Well, Julia, I'm thrilled to pieces that we got to speak. I have enjoyed interacting with you on social media. And so it's really nice to finally get to have a conversation and hopefully someday we'll meet in person. But I loved having you on the Thoughts from a Page podcast. Thank you. Oh, thank you. It was really fun to be here. Thank you so much for listening to my podcast. If you liked this episode, and I hope you did, please consider joining my Patreon as a page turner. Follow me on Instagram at Thoughts from a Page. Tell all of your friends about the podcast and rate it or subscribe to it wherever you listen to your podcasts. I would really appreciate it. The book discussed today can be purchased at the Conversations from a Page bookshop storefront, and the link is in the show notes. Thanks to Maggie Garza for sponsoring this episode, and I hope you'll tune in next time. Hello. Welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo, and for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book, and together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.